Good evening. My name is Joanne Mosseri, and I'm the dean of this wonderful school of nursing that you're visiting with us tonight. And I want to also welcome you to this wonderful gift of an evening with Hob Osterland. And I also want to thank the Garavantis Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture and the Beckman Humor Project for sponsoring and underwriting this event, along with the Pilot Alumni Nurse Association. So before we bring Hob Osterlin to the stage, let me first introduce Dr. Karen Eichler. Dr. Eichler is the co-director of the Garavanta Center and a professor in the School of Education. And she has earned numerous awards for education and for leadership. And while these are impressive, and they are, what is most impressive about Dr. Eichler is her kind heart, her warm spirit, and how she lives the values of the Congregation of Holy Cross every single day. And we count her as an honorary member of the School of Nursing, even though she's in the School of Education, for her consistent and really important contributions to the School of Nursing. Dr. Karen Eichler. You know you're at an academic event when there is an introduction to the introduction. <laughs> but good evening. You know how when you were a little kid, you say, one day I'm going to be an astronaut. And then the next day you say, I'm going to be a ballerina. And the day after that, I'm going to be a firefighter. After reading about 37 Nancy Drew books, I really wanted to be a detective for a while. And for some of you, Maybe it was reading Cherry Ames or Sue Barton books that drew you into nursing as a vocation. The point is that for most people, they love lots of things as a kid and then they dive into the one big thing that becomes their career. Hop Osterlin did not get that memo. She's like a kid who became a tightrope walker and a police officer and a scientist and a nurse and a professional photographer, and a passionate advocate for albatrosses on the island of Kauai. Those last four things, among others, are how Hob has spent her adult life. Her photos have appeared in National Geographic, in Nature, and the New York Times, just to name a few. She has a new book just published by Oregon State Press called Holy Moly, that connects the lives of endangered island albatrosses to the tangle of family networks and fateful decisions so we can add author and essayist to the long list of ways that Pob has spent her one wild and precious life to give a nod to the great poet Mary Oliver. Along the ways, she spent a couple of decades in palliative care, not giving it, but tending to the pain and needs <laughs> of patients in acute illness. She just knew that there was a better way to ease their pain and improve their quality of life, and she thought that way might include a healthy dose of laughter. Along the way, her many-layered professional path crossed that of UP's dear essayist and story catcher extraordinaire, Brian Doyle, and he really has willed that um, this evening into being. Around the same time that Brian was having his great idea, UP received an amazing benefaction from John and Patricia Beckman, which turned into the Beckman Humor Project, and they asked us to use that gift 
to explore the ways that people fight the powers of darkness through the gentle, healing power of sideways humor. Please join me in welcoming Hob Osterlin to the stage where she will share with us her wisdom about humor in nursing, finding time to laugh when there's zero time for lunch. Everybody in Oregon wants to know what kind of good deal did you get when you went, right? 
So that happened. What else happened? Went to Lenbeth Community College, and a little bit more about that in a minute. Is that enough Oregon cred? Yeah. <laughs> That's, okay, fabulous. Nursing cred. Karen mentioned some of it already. Uh, got, I, I actually have a bachelor's from Berkeley in, in ecological geography, which was my direction was wildlife biology, but then found out I couldn't really make a living doing that, so I went to nursing school in little old Lindbeth Community College after having been a hospital housekeeper and a nursing aide. So then I went to little Lindbeth Community College. And back then, you may not know this because it's been a while, but there was a federal law back then that all nursing schools had to have instructors named Peggy and Virginia. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Are you here, Peggy? Back then, it was a law. And so here I was, you know, this Berkeley grad, and I thought, I'm so smart, and they're going to think I'm so smart. And in the second year, you know, we're just a few months from finishing the program, and we were going to have our midterm evaluations. And they're on the, on the schedule, I noticed all my fellow students had a 15-minute evaluation, and mine was 45. And I thought, they're going to tell me how great I am, how spectacular job I'm doing. So I went in, and at the time we had these things called critical incident cards, or little three by five cards, that the instructor would circle what the student did that was effective or ineffective, right? And they're supposed to hand it to you right on the spot. You didn't wash your hands right, you know, that kind of thing. And so they, I came into the room and I saw a pile of about 35 critical incident cards. <laughs> and they were all, all ineffective. And most of them, were about inappropriate use of humor. <laughs> and if I were, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one example just to know how benign my humor was with patients. We're not talking about crude or cruel, we're not talking about anything that is racist or homophobic or anything that's nasty. It's all about trading absurdity. And so, I, I, and plus I had been a housekeeper, right? Mopping the floors, people would step right across them after I mopped them. I vowed I would never be let the housekeepers be invisible in my presence. And so I was going into the room, the housekeeper was mopping the floor, I excused myself, I waited until she was done, and then I said to the patient, who I had met the day before, but I didn't know very well, I said, well, it's a good thing I didn't walk through the corral on the way to work this morning, like I didn't get horse poop on my feet, right? So that was, and the instructor was back in the corner going, <laughs> <laughs> So, and, and the rest of the stories were similar to that, and it was devastating. Absolutely devastating. I wept for weeks. I looked like a candidate for Visine ad. And I, then I went mute in class. I just stopped talking in class. I just, I couldn't know, I didn't understand what they wanted or what they meant, so I went quiet. And a couple of weeks later, one of them came up to me and said, you know, I think you're doing much better. <laughs> so you know what they wanted, right? So, and there were other events that happened around that, but I have to say, that they set my life on a trajectory I will never, ever forget in a very wonderful way. It, it made me contemplate what humor does mean to us. When is it healthy? When is it unhealthy? When is it good? When is it not good? When is it dark? When is it light? I really had to contemplate that because of that very circumstance. So it led me into writing articles first about humor and nursing. I was one of the first um, authors in nursing 82 to publish an article about humor and nursing. And my friends here in the front row, who then worked at the hospitals where Peggy and Virginia worked, then put them on their desks so they would see this 
article. Sweet sort of silent revenge. <laughs> but one of the things I knew all along when, when that incident happened was that one day they would see the light. And 25 years later, I got a phone call, picked it up. This is Virginia. <laughs> really? Hello. We're having a reunion of the School of Nursing. We wonder if you could come keynote. Now that I live on Oahu, we're talking about my flying 3,000 miles to come to keynote this event. And I said, really, what would you like me to talk about? I had to hear her say it, right? <laughs> well, humor, of course, she said. And I honestly don't think she remembered. I honestly don't think that that moment was anything that she recollected. So you know how that is in sometimes families, you have a sibling that had exactly the different, the opposite, a very different experience from what you had. It was very traumatic for you. The person said, no, that never happened. That's how it felt. Like she never really realized that it happened. But it set me on a whole hairpin turn from the direction I was going. So then I started doing, oh, and so I did, I did go do that keynote. I did run and do that keynote. Uh, somebody actually paid for my airfare to go, so it was possible to do it. Uh, and I gave a presentation to an audience of, of nurses, all of whom had gone to that school, and I told them that story. Not in a way that was derogatory to Peggy in Virginia, but just to give an example of how far we've come in nursing. Because it, for them, it was too intimate. Because you don't laugh with people you don't like. Right? When, you're, when you really don't like someone, you don't laugh at them, by and large, unless it's maybe there's a joke you heard or something. But by and large, we, when we laugh, it's because there's an element of love in it. And that was too hard for them. And it was a time when nurses were supposed to be starched and stiff. So it gave me an opportunity to see something different. Then I started doing presentations about humor and started um, showing slides of crazy charting entries you know, that you put, people put in charts and nonsense kind of stuff. A uh, patient has, uh, she has, uh, she has a death hug, nah, I'm not going to give that example, never mind. Uh, but there were a lot, of, a lot of examples of funny things in charts that cracked people up. And then I thought, nah, you know what, I'm not going to stick with that. I'm going to create a comedy character instead. So one day when I was driving to work at Queens Medical Center in Honolulu, this, this character named Ivy Push came to me. <laughs> and she started telling me things that I could say. And so, <laughs> and so, this is Ivy Push right here. So you're gonna see a, a, a montage. I, I actually have um, two full-length DVDs, but this one is about a 78-minute <laughs> montage of the second DVD. So you can see, the shtick is that Ivy Push is an evening shift nurse. <clears throat> She's in her 60s. She's speaking an accent we call pigeon in Hawaii. So and in Hawaii, we brag what races we come from. So she's English, Irish, Spanish, Hawaiian, Chinese, Portuguese. That's very proud. She's very proud of that. Speaks that pigeon dialect. Uh, but she now, it's 11 o'clock. She's not done charting for the evening shift, and she's been given mandatory overtime. She has to work night shift now. She's exhausted. She really does not want to work mandatory overtime, but it's mandatory. So she's got to stay another eight hours to do the shift, undoubtedly. So she's got a few comments about the general state of healthcare and a few things about patients and doctors. So let's watch Ivy Push. RN, and my fit is tired. So 
I meet you folks like this, but us nurses is too tired to stand up anymore unless there's blood or fire. Uh, pepperoni pizza. And, uh, we work so hard around here, my, even my hair is too tired to grow. The bags under my eyes is too big to qualify for carry-on luggage. Number 
too. If I'm on my back for a few days and I get one of those bed hairdos, <laughs> don't leave me. I'm scared to be alone with hair like that. Number three, if you're ambulating me and while I'm walking I start making noises like Mr. Coffee, resuscitation in the terminal yield, for example, about TV news going on all night in the patient's room who can't necessarily control the, the panel, him or herself, that kind of thing. So here's one. I want to move into another chapter of this, but there's something I forgot to do before I show this. So I want to ask you to do me a favor, and that is just sit with yourself for a minute, close your eyes for a sec, and I want you to just give yourself a stress rating for yourself. Zero, no stress, 10, terrible stress. Just give it to yourself. Doesn't have to share it with anybody. Just get aware of how stressed your day is or your life at the moment. And then I want to ask you to do one other thing. I want to ask you to see if you can envision the age you were when you started thinking that you weren't perfect. When you started thinking there was something wrong with you. Something wrong. <coughs> Who you were. So you can get an image of the age you were when that first happened. Could be three, four, six, ten, teenager. You started really getting the message. You weren't perfect. You were terribly flawed. Then when you get an image of that child inside you, if you just invite him or her to be with you tonight, to be seated with you, on your lap or by you or on the floor next to you, anything you want, but just ask that child to come be with you. Get a sense of how you feel about that child. 
just keep that in your awareness for now. For me, it was 10. That's the age I was when my mother died of breast cancer, and I thought it was my fault. That's what children of that age think, you know. There's no way you could put such a horrible occurrence into any other framework, except at that age, it was your fault. There's something that you did that was so terribly wrong that no one even would tell you what it was. They never mentioned it. It was such poison, they couldn't even let it off their tongue. That was the age that I was when I started conscious. I'm thinking there was something terribly wrong with me, in fact, that I might even be homicidal. So I'll tell you a little bit more about that. But that 10-year-old is with me all the time now. I, I invoke her all the time to remind her who she really is, that that really wasn't her fault, bring her along on all my adventures. I hope you can do that, too. It will make a difference about your sense of humor. So we'll return that to, to that toward the end. So then with the Ivy Push uh, performances, the first one we filmed, we filmed at the Queen's Medical Center in an auditorium there. Uh, and then we started showing it on the in-house channel, the in-house closed circuit channel for, for the hospital. And you know what it does to walk down the hall and hear patients and families laughing? What it, it, I can't tell you what it meant to me. It was so extraordinary to walk down the hall and I could hear this loud, funny laughter. And they, they're not nurses. I'm not, it's not necessarily a language they would all understand, some of the things I said, but they were laughing a lot. The people that touched me the most, completely something I would never have predicted, were the most down and out people you could, the homeless, drug abusing, sociopathic patients. When I came in the room, even though I'm, that's a wig, or this is a wig, I don't know what one of them is. <laughs> they, I don't look like her. I mean, I've been with friends in the same room who knew they were coming to watch me perform and they didn't know that was me. But the patients, the homeless patients, hey, you Ivy Push, eh? I know you, Ivy Push. And they felt this grand connection with her. I get, we call it chicken skin in Hawaii, I get total chicken skin when I think about it because something about that was, made them feel like they were connected to some kind of greater web. I still can't explain it, really. But they knew there was a person that understood them. She's not really talking about them. I don't know how that happened. Any of you have ideas, share with me at the reception afterwards what, the, what made that magic happen. But that made me really then want to create more of that kind of comedy in the in-house television. So I created something called the Chuckle Channel and became a producer. Who knew? Who knows how to be a producer? Not me. But what I, what I sought to do was find comedies that were suitable for the hospital, that were, that were I called it the Sufi criteria, suitable for all ages, uplifting, uh, uh, funny, <laughs> and inclusive, meaning nobody's put down. Nobody's put down, nothing is crude or cruel. You could have your five-year-old in the room or your grandmother in the room, and it would be still good. It's not easy to find comedies like that. But I tell you what, the reason I wanted to do it was because the people in comedy clubs are not the same people in the hospital beds. That's a whole different demographic. In hospital beds, people are much older than in the comedy clubs. They tend to be more female than male, and they tend to not be able to get some things that are really fast, shocking stuff. Just isn't funny to our patients. They already have fast, shocking stuff going on. So gentle humor. So then I started 
putting them all, putting them together. We had shows, uh, dozens of them at Queens, and then I then I made it so that it was something that other hospitals could have. Now all the cancer centers, um, cancer centers of America, show them in their in their settings to all their patients, and it's good for staff and visitors too, right? So it it's meant to be something to keep on uh, uplifting people. So I'm going to show you a couple of examples from the Chuckle Channel. Just little brief clips. So uh, uh, forgive me for the some of us a little bit. Uh, we're like four stages away from how it really looks on TV because we copied it a couple of times to put it here for you. So this is uh, David Pendleton of Ventura. I had a little cough the other day, but I'm doing better now. You had a cough. Mm -hmm. What did the doctor do for you? He gave me a laxative. <coughs> the doctor gave you a laxative for a cough. Mm -hmm. Well, did it help? Oh my, yes. Now I'm afraid to cough. <laughs> Doctor, give me a laxative and some Prozac. A laxative and Prozac? Yeah, so I've been going to the John a lot, but I'm feeling good about it. <laughs> Normally, I'm very regular. That's, that's great. Yeah, 7 o'clock every morning. Tilly, that's 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 great. Oh no, that's bad. That's bad. I don't get up till eight. <laughs> oh, you laugh, it's not funny. Someone point out to me, is there a single man in here? Just someone point it out to me if there is a hi honey. Nice to see you, Bill. You know Bill. Oh, my, yes. Bill and I go way back. He actually took me out on a date one time. Is that right? Oh, yes. Took me out on horseback. On, on horseback? That's right. We each had our own horse. Went out in the pasture. And his horse started to nuzzle up against my horse. And he looked at me and said, hey, I'd like to do that. What'd you say? I said, go ahead, it's your horse. <laughs> so that's a little example of what I mean. We, we have, uh, gosh, more than 24 hours of comedy uh, to the hospitals that show them in the, to their patients. But collections of things, just as a just as a small example, that might represent more of that the population of people that are in the hospital beds. They're going to identify with Aunt Tilly, and and so David Pendleton is playing a bit of a foil for her by being the ventriloquist. But they don't need explanation. They can watch it over and over again, or they can change the volume or do whatever they want. But they're in control of watching what's funny. So then it got to be, well, maybe there ought to be a way to prove that comedy helps. Some people had done various studies, and there certainly had been people who had done literature searches, and people who had tried showing funny things, but nobody had done a randomized controlled trial, an RCT, the baseline for what you need for, for solid science. So I got a team of people together, and we designed a study. And this is something I'd like to actually offer to Joanne to do here. This is, it's, a, it's all, more than half the work is the design of the study. So it's all designed and it's free. So it's available for you. And maybe there'll be a student here who can get a Brian Doyle scholarship for $3,333. <laughs> and 
30 presents. That's <laughs> true. And helped to ride it through. So in this comedy, what we did was we created a randomized control trial in outpatient oncology. You do it in outpatient because the inpatient setting has way too many other variables going on. But in outpatient oncology, we have people sitting there for hours receiving chemotherapy and dialysis. And so we randomized 50 people over a two-year period of time uh, into getting either comedy or getting a boring documentary. And I tell you what, finding the boring documentary was much harder because you can't have nature scenes, you can't have gentle voices that could be soothing, you can't have music. So I went to Netflix and I, I looked, I searched all the two star things. <laughs> and some of them you would think would work out like, you know, igneous rocks. And so you got to watch a dick documentary about igneous rocks, but no, that was very therapeutic because they fly over these gorgeous mountain ranges. You see these beautiful forests, and now that wouldn't work. So you had to find something absolutely as untherapeutic as possible. So I finally stumbled on something that you'll see a bit of in a minute. Um, and it was called The A to Z of British Steam Engines. <laughs> as you know, Z is the British Z, right? The A to Z, and what it showed was boring footage of a train going to a town in England that started with an A, a B, a C, a B, <laughs> So it's just blurry black and white, you know, steam engines. And then the person would say, Andover, Bristol, right? The patients begged me to turn it off. <laughs> so, so half of them were randomized to that group and half of them were randomized to, to watching comedy, and we'll show a little clip of that too, uh, to a piece of comedy. And we also did uh, salivary cortisol levels. We put a little, like a little Q-tip in the cheek of a patient so they could get some saliva before and after watching. So we get a sense of what happens with the cortisol levels. Anyway, at the end of that time, when it was all analyzed and statistically reviewed, it showed significant decrease in pain, significant decrease in anxiety, and a significant increase in the sense of well-being from watching 45 minutes of comedy in an outpatient oncology program. So, that's good. I want more people to do it, to see what they find out. It'd be lovely to have other sites do it and learn. Because it's in the interview with the patient where you learn even way more than the numbers can tell you. So it was called the Comic Study, Comedy in Chemotherapy, the Comic Study. And we're going to look at a couple of clips now. Here comes Anita Renfro. She's also she's a comedian who's done very, very well. This is in her early years. She doesn't look quite like this anymore. That's a very 70s, 80s looking outfit.
So fortunately, I had the good sense to look out into the hall and see how other people had theirs on before I sashayed myself out into the crowd. I finally call you back into the very, very cold room where the piece of medical equipment is. And there's a big piece in the middle of the room, and there someone who you've never met before will ask you to take off this top that you spent so much time working on. And there they basically want you to um, lay it up on the altar. Thank <laughs> you. 
so that's what we did with that. <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, so then after that, you know, you have a research study, and you want to report your findings, right? You want to tell the world about this research study and hopefully get some attention so that there will be more, people will feel more uh, legitimized in integrating humor into hospitals, into healthcare settings, into anywhere, into your lives. It's just so magic, isn't it, how it connects us. We, when we laugh together, we feel there's an intimacy to us. If we cry together, people are going to start leaving and looking around like this is getting really uncomfortable. But laughter keeps binds us together in the most magical, mysterious way. So I thought, well, if I'm going to report about a comedy, besides writing up the p-values and the other evaluations of what happened with the study and sub submitting to journals, I wanted to do a DVD. I wanted to film something about this. And I thought, well, if you're going to report on the effectiveness of comedy, you better make that comedy. right? So the research study. DVD has to be funny itself. Otherwise, what's the point, right? So, now what we're going to do is watch another DVD. And this one I produced it when I was still at the Queens Medical Center. Uh, and the story, the backstory is that the television reporter, who is actually a professional actress, the uh, television reporter has heard that there's a comedy study that's been done, and she's going to be the one to scoop that story. She's going to be the one to get the story, and this is this is going to be her Emmy. Right? She's going to really tell that. So she's hurrying around the campus trying to figure out how she can scoop that story. So here we go. It's called Humor Rumor. of KAKA Island News. I'm here on the grounds of Queens Medical Center, okay. a highly respected hospital here in downtown. Okay, so we're not getting the visual on this yet. Is anybody expert on this? We watched it in, in uh, right before the program and we can play it. So if anybody can come up and lend a hand to this, we, I really want you to see this show. Is anybody, we got a whiz? We must have a media whiz in the room. Somebody's pointing right there. Wanna come on, come help. of KAKA Island News. 
I'm here on the grounds of Queens Medical Center, a highly respected hospital here in downtown Honolulu. Now, no one would argue that a hospital is a serious place, but I've heard a rumor that there's humor here, even humor research. And if that's true, I'm gonna be the one to crack this story. Constipation research. Just a little bit of gas. Remember, we don't want to overinflate. We had that unfortunate incident last week with Mr. Tanaka and his rupture. Let's all stand up now. And this time, just under the right butt. And one, two, three. Sit on. Mrs. Ornstein, are you having trouble? You look like you're having difficulty there. Is your equipment working? That's good. And now let's try it. And sit on it. Uh, we're doing some research and
Are you ready? Where's the humor research lecture? In the order to pray. First time you told you, right? Oh. The many people. So a local TV station thought so too. I'd like to show you TV coverage of this exclusive story. Aloha kakou. We've all heard that laughter is the best medicine. And now Hawaii Hospital has put that idea to the test with a first of its kind study. Cancer is no laughing matter, but a little bit of comedy during treatment seems to help. The Queen's Medical Center has completed research called the Comic Study, Comedy and Chemotherapy. Susan Kobayashi was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer and was one of the 50 patients who enrolled in the study. Kobayashi's chemotherapy is now over and she remains cancer-free two years after her treatments. Mahalo to all of her therapies, including a healthy dose of laughter. It appears that laughter is the best medicine after all. This is Kavehi Kaumola, KUKU Island Television News, Imalama Ponokako, Aloha. This is the first time ever that we're aware of in the whole world that anybody has ever looked at symptoms of cancer and chemotherapy and what happens when you show comedy. So one of the most wonderful things we learned about studying humor is this. It just all depends on how you look at things. Well, because she's still working. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, I promised you we'd be done by 8.15, and so what I want to do is just take a minute to look back again at your stress level, see if it's any different. I'm not going to ask you to share it, but just take a check, see if you feel any different than you did before you got here tonight. And then also, take a peek at that child that may have appeared to you when you thought about when you first understood or began conceiving of yourself as imperfect. And here's what I promise you. If you invoke that child to be with you and you reparent that child, your sense of humor will grow. Again, remember the part about how we don't laugh at people we don't like. And sometimes that child is really tough on us because she or he has convinced us how imperfect we are. We're too big, too little, too dumb, too smart, too tall, too our parts are too small or too big, whatever it is. Make friends with her and reparent her. Treat her like you would if you had a child that age, a real physical child that age. How would you treat that child? Treat that child you beckoned that way. And what will happen is that magically things will get funnier. We, as nurses, get into situations all the time, as you know, that aren't so funny. And there are places where it's appropriate and inappropriate, as we all know. Some of the funniest situations that I've been in has been in, in resuscitation situations, when we're trying to keep someone alive. And the team that's doing the work needs that to regroup and re-team and refocus. But if I'm the daughter of that man being coded outside the curtain, I don't want to hear people laughing. Right? So it's finding the timing, it's finding the place where it works, and making sure it's not causing the dark side of humor, which is the painful side. Even when we're around dying people, some of the funniest things have ever, I've ever been around have happened. I was telling a story the other day that I was with this patient who was dying, and I, I got to know his, his ex-wife and his daughter came often to be with him. In fact, the ex-wife was spending the night. And one morning I came into the room, and the uh, patient had died. Daughter came into the room, and they were both grieving a lot. They still loved him very much and uh, were grieving a lot. And the, and the uh, dietitian came into the room with a breakfast tray. And here he is with a breakfast tray, and, and he holds it out there for a minute, and then he sees maybe he should take it away. So he t as he takes it away, he says, patient refuses breakfast. 
the opening we needed. We all we got so hysterical. We laughed until we cried. It was exactly what we needed. And he probably had a check mark he had to put somewhere that said, you know, patient ate fifty percent or, or refused or whatever. Patient refuses breakfast. There's a quote that's attributed to George Bernard Shaw that I that I want to invoke too. I think it's a great quote. Life doesn't cease to be funny when someone dies any more than it ceases to be serious when someone laughs, right? Life doesn't cease to be funny when someone dies any more than it ceases to be serious when someone laughs. So let's say goodnight to Brian and Mary. Are we ready to do that? Turn to the camera. What? Okay, wait a second. Shall we rehearse one time? Are you ready? Okay, we're gonna do one rehearsal. Aloha, Brian. where there is food and drink for everybody Yay. and a very generous Hob Osterlin would be happy to chat with you, take questions, and so on. So we hope that we see you. Lynn Slauson, welcome. Thank you everyone for uh, putting a terrific program together tonight. And I just want to say thank you very much to... Oh, oh. I've got a gift for you. Oh. So we certainly oh, I appreciate you uh, Do I need a court's report? <laughs> Did you do? We're going to share <laughs> share a word very quickly. My name is Lynn Slauson and um, I'm a graduate of the University of Portland School of Nursing class of 84. So that was a while ago. <laughs> some of my dearest friends are here from those days. Um, and I went on and got a master's degree in um, health management from University of Oregon in, in uh, 1987. I currently work as a clinical specialist um, for Janssen Biotech, the, the biotech division of Johnson & Johnson. And I've recently been invited to help with the University of Portland School of Nursing alumni group. And I wanted to tell you just briefly about what we're doing with that. Um, and the reason why I'm so tied to University of Portland School of Nursing is not only my own education, but my daughter graduated from here this last spring. And I had the opportunity to see Kelly grow professionally and spiritually, and every part of her personality and um, her clinical education was attributed to this amazing School of Nursing. So I had the opportunity last spring to watch her be pinned and to graduate, to go through the, the uh, board exam and, and call me afterwards saying, I failed mom, it shut off after 75 questions which she didn't understand was the fact that she passed the test. And, um, and then to go on and get a job at um, Providence St. Vincent's. And so just a little bit of a story about that. There's a very special person here in the, in the audience, Dr. Sue Moscato, who over 35 years ago, I happened to be a nanny for her children. And I was in high school. 
And she knew I was interested in nursing. My mom was a nurse at um, Oregon Health Sciences University. Actually gave Adria myosin when it was in phase two clinical trials and they never put gloves on, never put protective stuff on back in the day. But Dr. Moscato took me under her wing, put me in the coolest lab coat, and brought me to St. V's and let me experience what it would be like to be a student nurse there. And so that started our path and 35 years later, my daughter, was at, at Providence St. V's, and so I'm incredibly grateful for all that is possible for, for you. For the students out there, just know that you're gonna get through it. It's gonna be amazing once you get there. Um, my daughter just recently moved to Michigan. She went back for four days and had seven interviews and got seven job offers. So there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so just very briefly, I wanted to tell you about this new chapter that we've developed and some of the things that we're looking at and maybe uh, pique your interest in, in perhaps helping us. Um, we're looking at um, mentorship and how we can get high school students interested in health careers. And so recently we've had the opportunity to work with Madison High School and their amazing biomed program. Um, but we're also looking at ways that we can support the nursing students as they transition from school and into that working career, which um, humor would be a tremendous part of that because it's a very, very stressful time. And so we're looking for ideas around that. Um, and some of the other things to be aware of, we have an amazing event coming up and um, Lindsay Bennis, one of the faculty uh, personnel here is going to be doing a pain lecture. It'll have contact education units associated with it um, coming this spring, so watch, watch your information for that. And then finally, we have got a program coming up in the Life After UP series. It's caregiving for aging parents coming up on April 19th um, at 6 o'clock. So if the members of the um, alumni group would stand up just briefly so that we can recognize you, I want you all to see these people. If you have questions or want to hear more about what we're doing, be involved potentially in mentorship or um, just reconnect with uh, your friends from back in the day of nursing school, uh, please feel free to reach out to any of us. And our um, reception is going to be right around the corner in the boardroom. And thank you so much to Hob. And thank you so much for joining us this evening.